Good morning, and thank you all for coming along this morning. This morning, we're, we're going to continue. We're looking at the four journeys which are described in the book of Acts by Luke the historian. The first one was Paul's first journey, which was quite as into Galatia and a quite a localized area. The second one took him further apart and further out, and then eventually into Europe. I wonder if you. Let's see if we can get the technology to work. There we go. I wonder if you noticed this headline in the news this week. The Daily Express carried it. It said, Bible proof how New Testament was confirmed after the discovery of document from A.D. 48. Um, Luke is an historian. And this headline, which went onto the radar, described how a document has been found which confirmed that the Roman Empire did require people to return to their place of birth for the purpose of a census. It was discovered, it comes from AD 48, there's another one from AD 110. Now, to be quite honest with you, the Daily Express is slightly behind the times, but they really set that aside. But the documentary evidence, the historical evidence is there for that event. Many people have argued that it simply couldn't have taken place. It wouldn't have happened. And yet, today we have the archaeological evidence. We want to look this morning at the apostle, or look at Luke rather than the apostle. We want to look at Luke as a historian, because what we're looking at this morning is full of history. And as David said, I'm in my realm. I just love history, as many of you know. I taught history for many years and studied history at university. We reminded ourselves that um, the Acts of the Apostles is, pro- is book two of Luke's account. He wrote Luke, and then he wrote Acts of the Apostles. When he started the book of Luke, he said this, in my former book, Theophilus, I began to write about all that Jesus began to do and teach. He goes on to say, it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainly concerning the things which have been taught. Now, that's his introduction to book one, and he picks it up again at the start of Acts, if you like, in book two. The interesting thing is that this introduction is written in a very classical Greek style. It is a style employed by historians of the period. And Luke makes three very significant points. He says, first of all, it is an orderly statement. In other words, he says it is an historical account. And then he says that you may have certainty. It's an apologetic record. He's giving the arguments for and against. And finally, he says that you may have no concern the things that you have been taught and it has a theological purpose. So, he's saying that these two books are a historical book, an apologetics book, and he's also saying that it's a theological purpose. This morning, I want to, for the sake of this journey, to focus on the fact that Luke was an historian. And the question is, was Luke a good historian? Now, Luke is recognized as a very good historian historian. But let's look at why he was so good. 
First of all, he was good because, as all historians do, he identified his target audience. Now, if I was to do a history of this area, the first thing I would have to do is identify my target audience. Because what do I mean by that? If I was writing to do a history of local churches, I would talk about this church, the Moravian church, the Methodist church, and the, the localized churches. On the other hand, if I was doing a, a survey on academia, I would look at Methodist College and Queen's University and, and present a completely different history. If I was doing a history on the roads, I would talk about the toll gate that used to be out there and the, road, the turnpike road that ran away out here down towards Dublin. If I was wanting to do football, I could do Linfield Football Club and that would be very short. But there, you could do it. And it's all the same area, it's all the same things, but what I have done is I have selected things for my target audience. And all historians do that. There's nothing unique in it. You decide your target audience, and when you've decided your target audience, then you write your history. Now, who was Luke's target audience? Now, there's been a lot of discussion, but we know that Theophilus is the person he's writing to. Who is Theophilus? We don't know. But I believe, and I hope to demonstrate as we go through today, that Luke was actually writing a document which was going to be used in a court of law. He was writing a document which was going to accompany Paul for his hearing in front of Nero in Rome. And so therefore, if that is the case, then his document must be absolutely accurate. It has got to have accurate facts to substantiate It's got to use all of the available sources which are available. And he also has to cross-reference and use all the sources of the day. That's the work of a historian. It's not unique. It's still carried on today, 2,000 years later. If you are going to carry out an historical analysis of anything, those are four very simple principles that you would apply and adopt. So was good, was Luke a good historian? I could quote to you many, many individuals, but I want to tell you the story of Sir William Ramsey. Sir William Ramsey was not a Christian. Sir William Ramsey, and I'm not going to read there, but there's a a CV. You can read it yourself. If you had that CV, you would be accepted as an academic in any circles. He was one of the, if not one of the most prominent historians of the 20th century. He started off to look at Luke's work. He started to examine it, and here's what one summary says. This is not Ramsey's work, but this is a summary. Ramsey dug into the Luke, Acts narrative, and his approach was strictly rational and critical, not faith-based. Notice, not faith-based. He correctly assumed that documents such as these were subject to the same methods of historical analysis as are all historical documents and are not mere legends or myths and could be either verified or falsified. His methods were simple and straightforward to painstakingly come through the Lucan narratives to identify all the details with historical value for verification. In other words, to simplify it, he decided to see if Luke was right. And here's what he said. Here's what his conclusion was. Any statement of fact with reference to date, geography, politics, archaeology could be tested for historical accuracy by historical cross-referencing. Any historian could have done what Ramsey did, but he was the first to do it for acts, or at least the most systematic. 
His findings astonished him. He found no historical inaccuracies or errors and a great many verifiable facts. Indeed, in the book of Acts alone, he identified 95 geographical details which proved to be accurate and still more in other categories. In other words, Ramsey, who was not a faith-based historian, as a matter of fact, he was an atheist possibly, and he was certainly an agnostic, and he approached us as a scholar, and as he went through the whole of Luke's gospel and checking the facts, uh, check, uh, went through Acts, checking the facts, he found 95 things plus more. And the consequence of this was that Ramsey became a Christian. He was one of the greatest scholars who looked at the historical evidence that was available and said, it can only be true. So let's come now to our study. This is the timeline we've been working to. We're now into the last two sections. And the last two sections run from 57 to approximately 62 AD. They fall into two very distinct categories. The first category is Paul's arrest. And Paul's arrest, I'm not going to deal with in much detail because next week Ian Kerr is going to come and he's going to talk about the legal arguments that Paul faced. Now, legal, uh, Ian comes from a legal background and is more capable of doing that than I will. But he will take us through Paul's arrest and the various trials that he faced. But he faces three trials. And then after the three trials, we have his journey to Rome. So the whole section, if you like, that we're looking at today is these two, last two blocks from 57 to 62 AD. But let's just remind ourselves where we are. The gospel started in Jerusalem. From Jerusalem, it moved out into Judea and Samaria. From Judea and Samaria, it moved out towards the Gentiles. From the Gentiles, it moved on out towards Asia Minor. From Asia Minor, it moved out into Europe. From Europe, it moved out now to Rome. And this is all happening in a period of around about 30 years after the death, crucifixion, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've talked about that. We've seen it. But we now see this massive expanse of the gospel right into Rome, and that's where we're going to finish today, because that's where the Acts of the Apostles finish. But we need to just get a couple of little matters clarified. Sometimes when you read the Bible, it's a wee bit confusing, because names are repeated. We talked about Antioch being repeated a couple of times. It's seen with Caesarea, because the name Caesarea can come up on at least two occasions. One is Caesarea Philippi, and the other one is Caesarea by the sea. Caesarea Philippi, the name associated is King Agrippa. Caesarea by the sea is Festus and Felix. And so, therefore, you need to just bear those in mind that we're talking about two distinctly different areas whenever we're talking about these two individuals or when you read the passage. I'm just going to skim right through this section of the trials. I'm literally going to highlight and just move on as we move on through it. First of all, in the end of chapter 21, we have Paul arrives back in Jerusalem. He goes through a vow. He presents himself at the temple. He is then arrested in the temple. And when he is arrested in the temple, he has his first defense at the temple. He is examined by the Jewish council, and he is then transferred to Caesarea. 
Now, Caesarea is down on the coast this time, and there he has a hearing before Felix, who was the governor. Felix only lasted for two years, but during those two years, Paul is in prison. And after being in prison for two years, he's brought out again, and he's put in front of the new governor, Festus, and Festus can't really resolve the matter, so he arranges for a hearing before King Agrippa. And so those are the hearings that we're going to hear about next week. But just let me take you to this. Paul before the Jewish council. Paul before the Sanhedrin. I want to read to you an account of what happened in that sitting. And I think this is a a fairly accurate description of what took place. You can see it here. Here's what Morton in his book, In the Steps of St. Paul, describes it as. The Sanhedrin met in three places, at the gate of the temple, in a hall in the southeast corner of the temple building, and in the hall of hewn stones, their most important assembly place of the three. There is a passage which tells us that 40 years before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, the Sanhedrin stopped meeting in the Hall of Huge Stones. Therefore, at the trial of Paul, which occurred just after this hall had been closed, it must have taken place either in the open air or near the gate or possibly in a hall in the temple area. The rabbinical writings contain minute descriptions of such occasions. It's easy to reconstruct the scene. The judges sat in a semicircle with the president, Mark number one, in the center. At each end of the semicircle stood a secretary, Mark number four. The secretary, one taking down the evidence for the defense, the other for the prosecution. On three benches in front of the judges sat law students or disciples or scribes. The prisoner was supposed to stand before the judges in an attitude of sorrow and humiliation. So this is what Paul faced whenever he was in Jerusalem, a scene similar to what is there on the background. Now, why is this important? Because what we have as a result of the trials that Paul goes through And because of the extensive record that Luke has, we have accurate historical evidence presented before a court of law. We don't just have hearsay. We don't have just people's opinions. We have actual legal proceedings. And we know from Josephus and other writings of the time that the Jews were methodical in keeping their records. And so, therefore, we have oral evidence from eyewitnesses. We have the written evidence from the two scribes, the two men who were there. One had to write down everything for the defense. Everything had, every, somebody had to write everything for the, what's the opposite? Whatever it is. Ian will keep us right next week. And then we also have a copy of the correspondence to Governor Felix. Now, this isn't the letter. I wish it was, because that would be fantastic. This is just an artifact that I dug up because it looked right. But the copy of the correspondence to Governor Felix. Now, Luke would have had access to these if he was in any way a systematic theologian. But there's another thing. He was there. He was there. He was actually there at these trials, and we'll pick this up later on as we go through. So the value of legal proceedings is absolutely incredible, and that is why Luke, in his writings, 
takes so much time at the end of the book of Acts to describe in great detail. Out of the 266 verses we're considering today, 83 of them are speeches. More than 50 verses are dialogue, in other words, between the two parties. And out of it all, we also have the letter to Felix. And so out of it all, we have 140 of the 266 verses that we're considering today are actually legal documents. I can't stress that enough. As a matter of fact, when you read the book of Acts, the book of Acts, one-third of it, one-third of the book, has legal authenticity or clear records made by people who gave speeches or studied in significant detail. And so, we now move to Paul's journey to Rome. This here is the type of ship that he would have sailed on in the second part of his journey. His first part of his journey up around the coast, which we'll hear about in the middle in a minute, was probably a small cargo ship. And then he transfers to this ship. It's an Egyptian grain ship. And we read about an Egyptian grain ship in the writings of Lucian. And here's what he says. I say, though, what a size that ship was. He's describing it. 180 feet long and something over a quarter of that in width. And from deck to keel, the maximum depth through the hold, 44 feet. And in the height of the mast with its huge yard and what a force day it takes hold of it. And the lofty stern with its gradual curve and its gilded beak balanced at the other side of the long rising sweep of the prow and the figures of her name goddess on either side. The crew was like a small army and they were saying she carried as much corn as would feed every soul in Attica for a year. Now you read that and you say, okay, what does that mean? Well, if we were to put that ship here in the crescent, I wonder what size it would be. Well, I have reliably talked to Jason Donaldson, so therefore I know this is right. If you're sitting up there in the gallery, you're on the stern. If you're actually up behind those organ pipes, and if there's anybody up, they've got a problem, but if you're up there, you're at the bow. That's the length of the ship. The width of the ship is slightly wider than the pillars on each side, two meters wider each side. Up there, and how high? To around about the top of the organ pipes. That's the size of the ship. It's an enormous ship. Sometimes when we think of Paul sailing to Rome, we think of a little schooner. But no, we're actually looking, and this is a first century record of an Egyptian ship. So we're looking at a huge ship which was transporting Paul. But now what we're going to do is we're going to carry on and listen to Paul's journey to Rome. Now, if you want to follow it, you'll find it in Acts chapter 27, and it starts on page number 936. But I would recommend that you just listen to it being read and follow the graphics, see it in a bit more detail exactly what is happening. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy... They delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Andromethium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon. 
and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed onto the lee of Crete off Salmone. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to Paul, what Paul said. And because the harbour was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbour of Crete facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon, a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Then, fearing that they could run aground in the Certus, they lowered the gear and thus they were driven, were dri- driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo, and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of this ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God, and it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little further on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land. But they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then, hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But 
Striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Just read is Paul's or Luke's account of that journey. That is the most accurate first century sailing voyage account that exists today in world history. As a matter of fact, those who are studying the topic, that those for whom this is their target audience, rely heavily on the information that Luke gave. Any piece of that information could be contradicted, any piece of it. And yet the accuracy that Luke gives us tells us something. He was there. The key thing whenever you're reading the passages in Acts is to look for the we word. Not he, but we. And he says, we set sail. We did. We went. And Luke was actually there with one other. And they traveled and they were shipwrecked in Malta. Thank you, Sharon, for reading it to us so well. And these anchors were, were cast off. This is a reconstruction of an anchor. And when you look at it, we know that there were four things from the account that tell us where it could possibly have happened. We know from the account that it was a bay with a beach. We know that the sea depth was 90 feet. We know that there was a reef or a sandbar where where two seas met. And we know it was a remote place where the sailors did not recognize. We know all of that. And today, traditionally... St. Paul's Bay on the island of Malta is where they say that Paul was shipwrecked. However, this is very controversial, and I'm not claiming to have the answer, so don't think I am telling you for certainty. But I personally don't believe it's St. Paul's Bay. It doesn't fit. And a group of American archaeologists, academics, and local fishermen took the account written by Luke about the shipwreck, and they went to the fishermen and they said, look, here's what he says, where is it? And they said, well, that's St. Thomas's Bay. And so they went down to St. Thomas's Bay, and St. Thomas's Bay fitted exactly everything that was described according to Luke, everything. It would have been actually, if you looked at the earlier map, the route that they would have been traveling. And the interesting thing is, when they started to talk to the local fishermen, they said that they had actually discovered four anchors in the sand a number of years ago and brought them to the surface. The archaeologists spoke to the man who brought the anchors up and asked them to take them to the location, and they did. And they took a sounding, and they were found in 90 feet of water. Coincidence? Historical fact? I will leave you to make that decision. The point I'm trying to make is this, that Luke's account is able to stand up 
to detailed historical scrutiny. And the point I also want to make at this point is this, that the Bible is based on historical facts. Many people think that we just believe a faith that is from an old, dusty old book. The fact of the matter is that the Lord Jesus Christ's death, crucifixion, and resurrection are historical facts. And if you trace them back to historical facts, then you've got to ask the question, if historically it happened, then what is the implication for me? And look, a historian has presented it to us in detail. Two weeks from now, we're going to look at the journey up into Rome. But we find that Luke almost sarcastically adds a little bit in to the reading. Whenever you read about it, you'll find that they got onto another boat. And he talks about this boat having the twin figureheads or the twin pictures or the twin signage of the twins. Two Greek, two Egyptian gods of the sea. And Luke actually mentions this, just, just in passing. But I think he's almost saying, ah, yeah, look at that. There's a ship there with these false idols. We've been on the ship that drove us onto the land of Malta, and the God of creation preserved us, and these boys are relying on that. I think that's what Luke's intention was. But again, that detail stands up to scrutiny. So perhaps we now need to look at, after we've read the account in the last minutes that we have, why does Paul or Luke spend so much time, so much effort describing the sea lake, the sea voyage? Why does he not just say, and Paul went by ship to Rome? Because when he described other movements, as we've looked right throughout the whole of the passage, he, he can't, doesn't give them much detail. He just, he went there, he went there, he went there. And Paul was shipwrecked at least three times. He says that himself. And so he doesn't describe any other shipwrecks. So why does he take so long to read and describe this this shipwreck that we've, we've just discussed? And I think there's a really good reason for that, which we need to look at. There are three reasons. One, the literary significance in the first century. Second, to reestablish Paul's apostolic credentials. And thirdly, God's salvation is to the Gentiles. Let's go through these very, very quickly. First of all, literary significance in the first century. Remember what I talked to you about, about target audience. If this was going to Rome, this is that document, if it was going to be read by Nero, if it was going to be part of the case, then this is very much a technique which was used in the first century to prove the innocence of a man. The Hellenistic Greek-Roman tradition frequently talked about people who had survived dramatic events at sea, and the fact that they had survived these events was evidence of their integrity, and evidence of the fact that they were not guilty. We read that, but also we read about many, many shipwreck events. And so, therefore, if you were a first-century Greek or Roman reading this, you would probably read it from a slightly different perspective than what we would read it today as 21st-century Christians. They would see a hero 
who have been saved from the sea and as a consequence could have been innocent. And as well as that, we haven't had time to look at it, but we have the incident in Malta. Whenever he lands in Malta, the people there receive him, and he's bitten by a snake and and survives the biting of the snake. All of this adds to the significance in the first century. But if that was all it was, that's a very, very limited finding. And if that's all that Paul or Luke was trying to do, that's a very, very limited reason. There's a much greater reason. Paul's apostolic credentials need to be reestablished. Don't forget that Paul had been out of the limelight for a number of years now. And he even says himself in 2 Corinthians that with the uttermost patience and signs and wonders and mighty works, he proved his apostolic credentials. And we have this. He prophesied that they would be saved. He survives the snake bite in Malta. We read again of an account of the father of Publius who is dying of uh, dysentery and fever, and Paul heals him. And we read that the rest of the island were healed. And this is all put down to the actions of the Apostle Paul. And so therefore, what Luke is actually doing now at the end of this, bearing in mind that Paul has been in prison and, and has been out of the sight for a number of years, he's saying, look, the Apostle Paul is still here. He still has his apostolic credentials. But probably the main reason is God's salvation is to the Gentile. If you read this whole account of the shipwreck in Malta and Rome, you find Paul engaging with Gentiles. What do I mean by Gentiles? Gentiles are people who are not Jews. At the very start, it is seen there was a real problem between the Jews and the Gentiles, in particular the Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And the last time in the book of Acts that Paul actually engages with the Gentiles was on his farewell address to the Ephesian elders, which we considered a number of weeks ago. And now, Luke is saying God's salvation is to the Gentiles. Look at it. First of all, he's placed under the supervision of Julius, a centurion. And this man shows him great kindness, saving his life during the time of the shipwreck allowing him to go and to meet with friends whenever they docked at Sidon. We also have him sharing a meal with Gentile shipmates who are facing extreme hardship. If you read the account, you'll find that he tells them to eat and sits there and breaks bread and eats with them. We also find him receiving hospitality and resides with the Maltese. Now, there's a little subtlety in that that we don't pick up. But the the Maltese were considered to be barbarians. Paul, or Luke, actually says that. He calls them barbarians. And yet they gave hospitality and food. He also receives hospitality from Publius, who is the, the, the first man of the island. And also we find that there's almost a, a, a friendship agreement. And so what we have now is this rapid transformation of a message going to the Jew and now going out into Rome and the Gentiles. And so the whole episode of the shipwreck sets a scene for the trial in Rome. It shows that Paul is innocent to the secular people. It shows that a God who is in total control. It shows a God who has reached out beyond the Jewish people to the Gentiles. It shows a God who can protect in the most difficult of situations. It shows a God who still can perform miracles.
And then we come to the last words that Paul mentions at the end of Acts. Be it known therefore unto you that the salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles and they will hear it. Just think of those last couple of words. You're a Gentile. Unless you're a Jew here today, you're a Gentile. You heard it. You heard it. And you heard it because of the journeys and the efforts of these first century men. And this message that has come down throughout the ages to the 21st century is based on historical fact. It is not a legend. It is a historical fact validated in history. This is a message that has been carried across into Europe, across today into Northern Ireland, into the island of Ireland and then on as well into the Asia and into the Far East and the South America and all across the globe today. There are people coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because they heard it. This is the message for you. This message of salvation is the same message that Paul and others proclaimed. It was the same message to the Philippian jailer. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It was the same message in Athens as Paul stood there declaring to them the one true God. It's the same message of the trials which say, look, this Jesus Christ whom you crucified has risen again. It's the same message that has gone right throughout the whole of the book of Acts where people had to make a decision to accept or to reject the same message. It hasn't changed. 2,000 years have passed. It's exactly the same message. It's exactly the same historical basis. It's exactly the same decision that is required from you and from me. And so we as a church and as a congregation have this responsibility. Our responsibility is to take this message out that people will hear it. To guest, to host, the outsider, if you want to use that term. It's actually appropriate because in Japan, you are called a gaijin if you do not live in Japan. And gaijin is made up of two Chinese characters, outside person. We have a responsibility to take it across the world. And this same message the same message that you hear has the power to transform your life. And so in summary, historically accurate. Changing your life and leaving us with a responsibility. And those are the journeys of the Apostle Paul.